Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, buddy. I'm Nate. If I haven't met you, I just want to say welcome. Welcome, everybody who's joining us online. Thanks for being here. Hey, we're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. This book is written mid-50s AD. It's one of the first books written in the entire New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people that he had lived with in the city of Corinth for 18 months of his life. And while he was there, he planted a church. Now, a couple of years have passed, and this church... Part of why I love this book is because this church is a bit messy. It's a little bit dysfunctional. And Paul's writing this letter, trying to help them get back on track, trying to help them figure out how can we be Corinthians and followers of Jesus at the same time. One of the challenges that they've had, and Paul has hit this in multiple chapters, is that their, their society is fragmented and their church is also fragmented meaning they have stratification and fragmentation. They have a sense of hierarchy when it comes to human life. There would be a Roman is more valuable than a Jewish person or a, a free person with Roman citizenship is far more valuable than a slave. And because this has entered their Jesus community, it's kind of messing with things. And in the previous chapter, Paul started in in this section where he's really saying this. He's saying, um, Like when you come together for a meeting, it's just so messy and so wrong. In fact, he says, your meetings do more harm than good. And so through 12 and 13 and 14, he's going to try to help them to figure out how can you have a gathering of people, ecclesia is the church called out ones, who actually have gatherings that are beneficial and helpful rather than harmful to each other. So... Last week, we began this chapter, chapter 12, with this idea because it introduces the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you're spiritually unresolved, if you're new to church, um, I understand this is probably going to raise a lot of questions in your mind, but hopefully they're good questions that help you search even farther. And if you're a veteran, you've been following the Lord for for a while, I, I hope this is a beautiful reminder of what Paul tells us. So last week, we looked at this. It's the idea of the Holy Spirit. Paul introduces the Holy Spirit. So I think to understand this, I'm going to do a brief review from last week. Genesis 1 and 2, first two chapters in the Bible. We read that God's original intention for human beings is that humans and the divine would be intermixed. They would live together in harmony, that God would walk with us, that we would know him. Genesis chapter 3, this chasm happens. Human life chooses rebellion and autonomy. And so then, whenever you read about the spirit of God, the enabling presence of God, it's only occasional through the ancient Hebrew scriptures. The, God, the spirit of God would come upon a military general or a priest or a prophet. And, and when the spirit of God mixes with a human being, something miraculous, divine, beautiful happens. But this hope began to emerge among the Hebrew people. For thousands of years, millennia, they prayed for what they called the Messiah, the promised one. 
In Isaiah 42, Isaiah 50, we read about this. This hope began to emerge that one day, one day, there would be reconciliation between the Spirit of God and human humanity. And that the Spirit of God would come upon the Messiah and remain. Then we read John's baptism. Uh, when he baptizes Jesus, Jesus comes out of the water. And this is what John says. He said, I knew that he was the promised one because I saw the Spirit of God come upon him and remain. This profound statement. But finally, finally, God can be connected and remain upon a human being. And from that point on, when the spirit of God comes upon Jesus, that's when miracles happen. That's when restoration happens. That's when he begins to teach and he begins to reach out to broken people and help them find healing. Towards the very end of his life, he looks at his disciples and he says this, the spirit of God remaining on me, which you've seen, is not just for me, it is for you. It is for the followers of Jesus. And he tells them, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem because God's going to give you the same spirit that he gave me. Acts chapter two, the spirit of God comes upon ordinary people and they receive, the spirit remains on them. And that's when the extraordinary events of the early church begin to take place. And so as we read this, we're like, wow, this is amazing. Everyday average people like us, When you are following Jesus, the problem of sin has been dealt with. Therefore, God's spirit can remain on you. So what happened in Corinth? Well, it led to a little bit of confusion. And because they're stratified and some people are more valuable than others, there's abuse in these spiritual gifts. And please hear this. Paul's never writing saying, quit. He's saying, do it right. Do it right because these gifts are essential. Right. Let's jump in. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. Here we go. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit is gifts, pneumaticos, things that are enabled by the spirit of God. The, the, the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Notice this. Paul's going to bring in the Trinity, the spirit, the Lord. Now he's going to say the father. There are different kinds of working, but all of them. And in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, everybody who is in Jesus, to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. Now I would like to take a couple of minutes and look at this phrase that we translate common good. Because if we don't understand this, we'll misunderstand everything that's happening. In fact, I think this passage is so often misunderstood and mistaught because we don't understand Paul's introduction. So the word common good in Greek, it's this, some pharaoh. So I, I, I try not to bore you with Greek words very often, but we translate it common good. Some pharaoh, here's what it literally means. It means someone is carrying something that is too big and too heavy for them. And someone comes along and helps them to carry it. So someone is dealing with anxiety or depression or chronic pain or disillusionment or confusion, whatever it might be. And the spirit of God sees what is happening in human lives. And the gifts are given, why? so that someone else can come along and say, can I help you 
with that. God has enabled me with insight for your situation. God has enabled me with mercy so that I can be involved in the messiness of what you're currently experiencing. So hear this before anything else. Spiritual gifts are meant to help people carry loads that they are unable to carry by themselves. Anybody ever felt overwhelmed in their life? Desperate in their life? Confused in their life? Just looking for somebody. Yeah, all of us, right? The reason that spiritual gifts exist is to help us in the midst of our weakness. Let's go on. Paul says this to one. Now he's going to list some of these gifts. To one, there is given through the spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. To another, faith, right? So I'm lacking faith. Somebody can give, have a gift of faith. They come alongside and encourage me where now I can begin to believe. The same spirit to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So I want to walk through those gifts that we had underlined, right? This is what Paul is saying to the one who lacks wisdom. You're just befuddled. You're confused. You just don't understand what's up and what's right and wrong. The spirit will show you his perspective. To the one who lacks knowledge, the spirit will show you truth. He'll come alongside with this burden that's too big for you. To the one who lacks faith, like I, I don't have faith to believe in God. I don't have faith that God's bigger than the crisis I'm facing. The spirit will impart through a spiritual gift the capacity to trust to the one who is ill. This could be of the body, of the mind, of the soul. I mean, this is just when we're broken, the spirit will dispense his healing presence. So when, when I'm dealing with a profound illness, like some of you guys are involved as nurses and doctors and healthcare professionals, you're doing this, but there's also a supernatural element to this that God will give somebody else a gift to help you in the midst of your illness, in the midst of your anxiety, your brokenness, your chronic pain. To the one who is facing a crisis, the spirit will provide freedom and empowerment larger than the crisis the gift of miracles. To the one who desperately needs to hear God speak, the spirit will edify, comfort, or direct. That's the gift of prophecy. Like, I just can't hear God right now. I hear so many noises, so many voices. God says, let me come alongside and give you someone that can help you understand what's happening. To the one who is unable to identify the origins of the spiritual forces at work. I don't know, is this God, is this me? Is this some other spiritual force? The spirit will bring clarity to the one who needs to praise and give thanks to God without your own thoughts interfering. Anybody ever suffer from what I call like spiritual ADD? Like, have you ever stopped to pray? It happens to me all the time. I try to come in here on, on Mondays and pray, pray for all of you guys. And I've been doing this for a while and I'll pray and my mind wanders and like, oh my goodness. I'm currently in an episode of Gilligan's Island, a TV show I haven't watched for 25 years. Like, how did I get here? 
Like focus, 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 right? When my thoughts get in the way, this is a gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. The spirit will enable you to do so in words and languages that you've never learned. I mean, these are just exceptional, exceptional things. So there's these gifts, God coming alongside to carry heavy burdens that we can't carry. Verse 12, Paul's gonna introduce us to a metaphor that he'll carry throughout the rest of the chapter. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, remember in the first century they did not interact or get along, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Like this all started, whether you're a wealthy Roman, whether you're a poor slave, like you were given the same gift, the same resurrection power of Jesus entered your life, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now here's a fascinating thing. Paul uses this idea of a body in this passage in Romans and Ephesians to help the church understand how they're interconnected. Because of this fragmentation, because of the sense of hierarchical value, Paul says, I, I, I want you to think of the church as a body, but here's what's really interesting. This is not a unique analogy for Paul. This analogy was used constantly in the first century by Roman writers to help explain the power of Rome. So they use the human body to describe the Roman empire, but it's completely different and Paul's gonna repurpose it. So if you were a Roman and you had conquered everything from Southern England to North Africa, all the way through Eastern Europe, all the way through Spain, guess what they said? To all these people that had to pay taxes, all these people that, here's what Rome did, is they marched to your borders with their legions and they said, we are offering you the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome in Latin. And your option was to either receive it and say, come on in, or to fight it. And they say, we will give you the gift of the sword and the spear to bring about the peace of Rome. So you're just like, okay, this is how Rome established its peace. And so this is what the Romans said. Caesar is the head. The Senate is the shoulders. The city of Rome is the epicenter. And they would look at the other parts of their empire and say, know your place. You simply exist for the sake of the head. So if you're in Spain, if you're in Southern England, if you're in portions of North Africa, you understand your place. You simply exist to make sure that Rome prospers. Now, Paul is going to take that illustration, which emphasizes Caesar. And he is going to say to the people, actually, you are a body, but Jesus is the head. And rather than diminishing you, say that you're just like the big toe, you're like a callus in the Roman Empire. He says, I'm going to tell you what you are. You are the literal body 
of Jesus Christ in the world, that Jesus is not a historical figure. He is alive and working today and he's working through people who the spirit remains upon. And now he's gonna use this illustration instead of to diminish the people, to let them know you are essential. You are vitally important. Let's go on as he carries out this illustration. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, hey, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, hey, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, okay, um, my grandma used to talk about your unmentionables, okay, are unpresentable, are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together. Okay, when he's talking about the church in Corinth, God has assembled this group of people. It's not an accident, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I won't pause for a moment. We'll read the end in just a second. As Paul uses this analogy to help them understand how important they are, there's a couple things. One is he says, there's really no room for gift envy. Okay, gift envy. Gift envy is when, I, I think we've all done this. You kind of look at your life and you're like, hmm, I don't know. Like, am I really that vital? Am I that important? And then I look at Chris Smith with his long flowing hair and <laughs> capacity to sit at this piano and just sing beautiful songs in key <laughs> and then pick up a guitar and play that. Anybody ever gone like, mm, I would like that gift. The gift of rock and roll. I mean, the gift of worship, right? So Paul says this, one of the things you're gonna have to be cautious of is looking at your own gifts and being unimpressed and wishing you had someone else's gift. He says, you're vital. You're absolutely vital. You're important. And then addressing this lack of harmony in their church and this stratification, he says, listen, as a church body, you have to get along. If, if your physical body is fighting itself, what do we call that? That's sickness, right? Paul's just saying, listen, you, you guys are the body of Jesus. You're the representation of Jesus to the people in Corinth. And so you just can't go around like, you know what? I'm the right hand and I am so frustrated at the left knee. 
I don't like their theology. I don't like their politics. And I'm just, mm, every chance I get, like, ah, get you, do you feel that? I don't like you. You just can't do that. He says, there is not an option for the body of Jesus to be frustrated, to hate, to be at war with other parts of the body. You together function in coordination to represent who Jesus is to your city and to your culture. Now, let's read the last few verses. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ. This is the most important part of this chapter. You are the physical representation of who Jesus is to your culture. And each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Okay, what if everybody in this room, everybody watching, you all had the gift of administration? And we all like got together and when we came to church, we brought, you know, pencils and spreadsheets. And we just planned, right? It's not gonna, it's not gonna work. What if we all had the gift of mercy? And we all just sat around like, oh, you're so sweet. Bless your heart. I feel your pain, right? That wouldn't be helpful. Somebody's gotta go, <clears throat> I'm sorry that happened to you, but let's move. What if we were all preachers, teachers? That would be a really long church service, wouldn't it? Like you're enduring my 30 minutes. It's like, it's almost lunchtime. Paul says this, you have to have a terrific variety of gifts. It's essential. Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And that's gonna lead us up to next week in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me give you six thoughts. As we read this text to help us when it comes to processing what it means to be a body, right? Filled with a variety of people from different backgrounds who have different convictions about certain things. How do we function together? What does Paul want the church in Corinth to know? What would Jesus want us to know today? Number one, please understand that gifts are not spiritual superpowers. Okay, spiritual superpowers. I don't know if there's a kid, I could speak specifically to guys, I don't know if it'd be true for as many women, but um, everybody had a favorite superhero growing up, right? Who was it? You know, Aquaman, Superman, Captain America, Batman, who was kind of awesome because he really didn't have any superpowers, he was just super rich and did cool things. Um, like if you had a superpower, what would it be? Become invisible? hear anything, fly. I'd kind of be up for flying. Sometimes we think of these spiritual gifts as like a superpower. I'm going to put on my cape. Now I'm going to prophesy, right? And just watch me do it. Spiritual gifts were never meant to create a wow. They're always meant to help someone who is carrying a load that is too heavy for them. Okay, when we think of them as superpowers, then we want certain ones and we think, boy, if I could do that, at the end, I put my hands on my hips. Did you see that? Spiritual gifts 
are meant to see somebody who is carrying something they can't. This could be in the church. This could be in your community. And you come along and there's somebody who's been struggling with addictive behavior, pain from their past. They can't get free. What could happen? God could give you the spiritual gift of mercy, compassion, knowledge, whatever it might be, where you come into their life and rather than it be glamorous, you pick up part of the pain that they're experiencing and you say, God has gifted me to help carry this to make your burden lighter. Let's move towards freedom. Let me help you. Let me mentor you. Let me walk with you. Let me cry with you when you're hurting. Let me teach you a new way of living life so that you don't have to carry this thing the rest of your life. It is not a superpower. It is getting involved in the pain of humanity to help bring about the healing work of Jesus. Number two, naturally, we read this passage and think about us as individuals. Okay? That, is, that is just North American. It is in our constitution that we are unique. We think about, well, I mean, first thing we do is like, I wonder what my gifts are, right? When we do this, we miss the main point. Okay, the main point for Paul is not, oh, you're an apostle. The main point for Paul is this. The church is made up of a variety of different people. And only when they function together can they accurately demonstrate who Jesus is to the world that doesn't know. It's the only way. So Paul's point is this. In their church, remember, they have all these like strata of human beings. So Paul's saying this. You could be at the upper echelon would be a Roman citizen who's a male and who's wealthy. Maybe they have obvious gifts of leadership. And they come into this church and in their minds at the opposite end would be a female slave. She has no rights. She doesn't have any freedom. And Paul's saying this, this is not about you and your gifts. This is about that the female slave within this new community that Jesus has created has equal standing with the wealthy Roman citizen who's a male. And this female slave could very well have a spiritual gift that God works through them to help carry the load for this man. Or this man who would typically dismiss this person could have a spiritual gift that would help assist her as she is moving through her life. The point of the spiritual gifts is this, gone are the, whoa, you're so talented. Oh, you're so privileged. You were born into the right family. Now it's all together and God is saying this, I'm taking all these human beings, disparate, different. And it's not about what you have, it's about what you collectively have. That there is not a challenge, there's not a problem, there's not a pain that human being can face that God couldn't say, I got so-and-so. Sit in the back row of the balcony. <laughs> That's exactly who I have for this situation. So it's not about me individually, it's about us. Number three, all gifts are meant to work in concert to be the tangible body of Jesus in our world today. So everybody has these unique and different gifts, right? And none of us can accurately represent Jesus, but together, Together, when we're functioning correctly, we can actually represent who Jesus is to a world that has so many 
questions. But it has to be in this sense of profound harmony. I, I am maybe the worst manager in the world. Like, I am not kidding you. I can, I can lead, I can give vision. I've been leading teams of people for so long, every year, at every review for 30 years. Hey, you know, you're a bad manager. I'm like, I know. I know, like you, people will tell me, you never give me feedback, you never give me direction, like what's your vision for my department? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just trying to get up in the morning and love Jesus and like make sure my wife loves me and my kids love me and I'm trying to make sure I've got something to say on the weekend. Like I have no vision for your life whatsoever. I cannot manage you. I'm barely managing my current life as it is. And like, I just don't manage because like, I don't think about you because I'm too busy thinking about what I need to do right? So you better go figure it out. People gave up on me a long time ago as a counselor. Cause I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I used to do marriage counseling and like people are crying in my office and I just look at them. And I go, you know what you need to do? You need to repent of being <laughs> selfish. And I look at the guy and I go, quit being a jerk. Love your wife, lay down your life. I look at the woman, you know what? You need to honor and respect him. And then they cry worse. You know, they're like more crying. I don't have that gift, right? But other people do. And the only way we represent Jesus is when we're all operating in our gifts. Number four, understanding this passage should change the way I go to church. And I would even say this, I think it should change the way I live my life. So here's the challenge. We, in North America, we typically think of church like this. I get to come and I, I, I get to um, turn on my TV, whatever it is, and I, I, like, I'm just ready to receive. Sing at me, beautiful songs, right? Teach me the Bible, feed me, mm. And then I'm done. Like, thanks so much. See you next week. This passage says, that is not a healthy way to think about church. This passage says, when I show up to church, I should be ready to receive. And you know what? What I receive might not be from anything that happens on the stage. What I receive might be someone who sees me across the room and somehow God's spirit says that person is carrying a burden and they walk across the room and they say, you know what? I just have this sense, could I pray for you? Like I'm gonna pray for a miracle in your life. I'm ready to receive, but I'm ready to give. Paul's saying when you gather, when you're interacting with people, you come into the room and just expect, can you imagine living this way? Expecting that the Lord would do something supernatural through you to help carry the burden of someone else. I just walk into a room and I'm expecting to receive and I'm expecting to give. And I'm expecting that God would work compassion or mercy or love or kindness or miracles through me or a word of encouragement. That, that just, that's just normal operation for people who the spirit of God remains upon. Changes what happens when you go to the gym. Changes when you go to the grocery store. That I am there not just to take, but I'm there to give. Number five, pride and shame 
should have no place in the Jesus community. Now we talk about this a lot in terms of our past and forgiveness, repentance, but here's something else. When it comes to spiritual gifts, pride should have no place in the spiritual community. That's what, that's what Paul's saying in part. That you cannot ever take pride in the gift. Like, hey, 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 did you see me lead? Woo-hoo, I'm good. I had this really disturbing experience about 30 years ago. I was an intern at a church and a guy who had been my hero. I, I would say he was one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard in my life. He pastored this church for decades, had left and had come back to visit. And as an intern, my job was to meet him before service and make sure he had everything he needed. His name was Roy Hicks Jr. This guy like just, just stretched my mind every time he taught the Bible. So I meet him before service and I'm like, how are you doing? Trying to catch up with him. And I said, are you really excited to teach? Cause you haven't taught much for a year. He goes, no. I'm like, why not? I said, you're like the best Bible teacher I've ever heard. He goes, you're not going to believe this. But the minute I resigned as the pastor of this church, my gifting, my, my preaching, teaching gift left. He goes, now when I teach, it's just tough. Like, like that gift is what let me do this for decades on end. And I was like, no way. And then I heard him teach. I was like, it's true. <laughs> like it's gone. Whatever it was, it's just, it's just gone. And what taught me is this, is you can't take pride in a gift that you have because it's a gift. And when the assignment ends, the gift could disappear. But we don't want shame either. There's just no room for people. I think this is where most of us fall actually is like, Nate, if I, like I'm part of the body, but best case scenario, I'm like the tonsils or a kidney stone or, you know, like... I'm a gallbladder, just take me out and everybody's better. Tonsils, just get rid of me. And woo, we're feeling good now. Listen, there are no kidney stones in Jesus' body. You cannot feel shame. Because when you feel shame, like I, I'm not that gifted. I'm not that unique. Don't you understand? I just, I, I'm a tradesperson. I work with my hands. I, I work with paper and data all day. Listen, this is what this scripture tells me. This is what Paul's emphatic with the people of Corinth about. You are uniquely, uniquely gifted. You just haven't discovered it yet. You haven't exercised it enough. You haven't been to that point where you're desperate and you see somebody carrying a heavy load and you're just like, God, I wanna help. Would you give me something supernatural to help them? No pride, no shame. Six, don't let the body of Jesus, the church, be handicapped. And I know this is a, a harsh word, but a lot of us live with some sort of handicap. You have chronic pain, something. And the point of a handicap is you can live with it, right? It just, you're not as efficient as you would be without that thing. Here's the problem. I think when some of us are locked up in shame and we don't, we don't throw ourselves into this. We don't believe that the spirit of God would remain on us. We don't believe that God would do supernatural things through us. We choose not to participate. And then the, the, the community ends up handicapped. We're just not as efficient or as good. We're not a great representation of Jesus to the world. Now, let me give you this illustration. I want to close with this. Years ago, my wife Jenny and I were at a symphony and... 
it's just, you know, it's a big deal, and we're kind of excited. We got dressed up for it. And I remember we had these interesting seats, like right down here. And um, I don't remember what was being played, but I'll, I'll never forget in the back, so the violins, everybody's over there, they're playing constantly. And in the back were two guys. One of them played the timpani drum, which is that huge kind of kettle drum. And the other guy had two pairs of cymbals, right? A pair of cymbals is what I should say. And I watched them because I was right next to them for 20 minutes. They just were reading the music. They had absolutely no part to play, just like. And then about 20 minutes in, I see the guy grab his sticks and I see the guy grab the cymbals. And I'm like, it's coming, it's coming. They're reading the music. And then in this moment, the conductor turns to them, points at them, and he's like, and then it's over. And they put down their sticks. They kept reading the music, reading the music, reading the music. 10 minutes later, conductor points at them. I wonder if they ever thought, man, I wish I had a violin solo. But here's the deal. No one else could play the instruments that they played. The conductor had written a part for them. A composer foresaw that they were needed for this moment in time. And you can't, you can't miss it. It was essential in the same way. Please hear me on this. The composer of the universe, the conductor of the church, Jesus Christ, has written a part for you to play. And if you don't play it, there is a hole. There is a gap. You are needed. It's only together that we can represent the person of Jesus to our culture and to our world. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.